Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, and welcome to the Yale University Press podcast. I'm Jessica Hollihan, and today I have the pleasure of talking with Keeley Orgeman. Keeley is the Alice and Alan Kaplan Assistant Curator in the Department of American Paintings and Sculpture at the Yale University Art Gallery. She's the curator of an exhibition currently on view at the gallery, Lumia, Thomas, Wilfred, and the Art of Light. Keeley, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. Can you start by telling us who Thomas Wilfred was and what Lumia is? Yes. Thomas Wilfred was a Danish-born immigrant who came to the United States in 1916 with the idea to pursue his vision of creating a new art form using light as his primary medium. And he had um, developed this idea a bit when he was living in Europe and as a student um, studying art at the Sorbonne in Paris and at other art schools in throughout Europe. Uh, but he was not satisfied with the responses of his instructors when he presented this idea for an art of light. And so he came to the United States thinking that here he would have, um, he would find a more receptive audience um, that would accept his his art form, and so um, beginning in 1919, um, in collaboration with a group of other uh, like-minded artists interested in working with light uh, as a form of artistic expression, he uh, formed a group called the Prometheans. And he was loosely affiliated with that group when he developed what he called the Clavilux, which was a color organ that produced um, luminous abstractions of moving colored light. And that the Clavilux was developed over the course of about three years before he was able to debut his work uh, in 1922 at the Playhouse Theater in New York City. And that became, that was the first Clavilux performance, and um, it was widely acclaimed. And he built on that success by performing other Clavilux concerts in New York City and also throughout the United States, then in Europe and also in Canada. And it was um, with that success he began to develop um, other forms of instruments that could be used in the home and played by individual users starting in the late 1920s and into the 1930s and from there developed an even more sophisticated type of instrument that could perform Lumia compositions, that is, these luminous moving um, compositions with um, instruments that were pre-programmed and fully automatic and could be put on continuous display in exhibition contexts like those of the museum. And, uh, you know, the words like uh, color organ and, and clavilux and Lumia instrument are, you know, having seen the exhibition myself, those are all exceptional ways of describing what you're looking at. But the truth is, mm. 
it's something other. The art itself is is a little bit unlike certainly anything I'd ever seen. Um, I, I was able to listen to a recorded interview with Thomas Wilfred from 1968. WNYC has it archived. And in his words, I mean, he, he's asked in the interview to describe, you know, sort of the, the basis for the art. And he says, in Lumia, the basic factor is darkness, utter and complete darkness. You must begin with that, not only that, but you must begin imagining endless dark space in front of you so that you're at liberty to build a form miles out and move it and make it come toward you and make it enlarge and make it pass over you as though you were sitting in some fantastic spaceship with a huge <laughs> window on the nose. And by means of manipulating the controls, which in this case is a keyboard, you could either travel through this fantastic world you were building out there of form, color, and motion, or you could stay at one juncture between space and time and let all the things pass you in review, mm. which is a really far out thing to say, <laughs> even now. Um, and it's useful and insightful, but it also doesn't actually tell you much about what you see when you look at Lumia in action. You can read attempts by people over decades to mm -hmm. describe what they're looking at and the range in analogy that they come up with is really incredible. Right. How would you describe what it is that you see when you look at Lumia? I think the closest analogies are with um, natural light phenomena, and probably those you're referring to are the aurora borealis in the night sky, as Wilfred says it in, in this interview that you cited. Um, every composition begins with a moment of darkness. And there are many moments of near darkness as the composition moves through all of its sequences. And sometimes um, with the works in the exhibition, those sequences are as brief as five minutes and 20 seconds or as long as, you know, an infinite duration of um, different combinations of color and form that endlessly cycle through sequences. Um, and sometimes those sequences resemble the northern lights um, as though the, the light seems to emerge from a source at the bottom of the screen and then sort of dissipate towards the top of the screen and then emerge as a different colored light form entirely. I think other phenomena that come to mind um, are star clusters, nebula. So Wilfred, again, in that description you cited, was just trying to describe cosmological phenomena, the experience of coming upon these uh, star clusters or single stars in the sky and then moving on and, and coming upon another form. Um, so I think, you know, this metaphor carries through all of his work from the earliest um, examples of the late 1920s into the 1960s. Um, but otherwise, I think you're right that, you know, no um, comparison to something known and familiar is quite adequate, um, that one really needs to see 
the works to understand what the experience is. And part of the experience is lingering before the composition that is sitting or standing and watching the composition unfold. And sometimes your eyes fix on an an image that seems recognizable for a split second, and then it unfolds and becomes something else just as quickly as you recognized it. so these are these are abstractions, and maybe if we speak, you know, in um, analogies to other forms of visual art, the closest um, analogs would be in abstract painting of the same period in the works of Jackson Pollock, for example, or even Mark Rothko. Some combination of these sinuous lines that appear in Pollock's work, or Rothko's fields of color. Um, You mentioned Pollock and Rothko, and that is where um, Wilfred's art was situated Mm -hmm. when it was, I think, first exhibited at MoMA Mm -hmm. um, as part of the uh, 1952 exhibition, 15 Americans. Right, right. Um, It had been shown earlier um, at MoMA. Oh. but in exhibitions with other paintings and sculpture from MoMA's permanent collection, nothing to the scale of the 15 Americans exhibition, which was truly a landmark show. And when was it that MoMA um, installed a, an entire room that was devoted to a Lumia instrument that was on permanent display? That was in 1964, just after MoMA had um, undergone a major renovation project, and they had commissioned Wilfred a year earlier to create this work in anticipation of the reopening of the museum, and it was one that they wanted to showcase, and they did. So when the museum reopened in um, the summer of 1964, Wilfred's Lumia Suite, Opus 158, was one of the feature works um, of the reopening and then then continued to be on view for several years up until 1980. And it was viewed by, obviously, lots and lots of people, including an individual named Eugene Epstein. And the Mm -hmm. story of your exhibition um, isn't quite complete without talking about him a little bit. Right. So I, I learned um, from a recent visit with Eugene Epstein, who came to the Yale Art Gallery for the opening of the exhibition. Um, I learned from him that it actually was not Lumia Suite that he first saw at MoMA, but it was one of the smaller scale Lumia works by Wilfred um, from MoMA's permanent collection and on view in their permanent collection galleries that... Eugene first encountered around 1960. And then he continued to come to the museum and, of course, um, became completely uh, (laughs) devoted to Wilfred's work when um, Lumia Suite went on view in 1964. But he was was devoted and, in fact, um, began corresponding with Wilfred even after the first encounter with the smaller scale work, which was entitled Vertical Sequence, Opus 137. Um, Eugene Epstein 
formed this relationship with Wilfred unlike anyone else before. And um, Eugene began to um, acquire Wilfred's work and um, and assemble this collection in Los Angeles. And uh, Eugene would then um, invite people over to his home in Los Angeles and have Lumia viewing parties, essentially. And then when people would com- comment on the work, Eugene would write a letter to Wilfred afterwards and share the commentary with him, which is such an interesting connection with one of the works on paper that is featured in the exhibition, which is uh, the question, the results of a questionnaire that Wilfred um, gave to his audiences when they came to to experience one of his Clavelux performances around 1940, and he compiled all of this data into a single. Um, a single drawing, essentially, in which he lists um, people's men and women's individual responses to different color combinations or the tempo of his compositions and other aspects of his work that he was interested in developing. And um, in a sense, Eugene Epstein was providing him with the same kind of viewer feedback. Um, And, you know, eventually... Eugene assembled the largest collection of Wilfred's work, um, and he has lent seven of the 15 light objects to our exhibition. So he's an incredibly important person for us. Absolutely. And are there, um, is there any Thomas Wilfred art on view anywhere else? at this point in time? or Not at the moment, but we're hoping the exhibition will change that. Absolutely. I mean, it's really exceptional. P- part of the sort of sense of dislocation that you feel, uh, that I felt anyway going into it, was that you are in a museum, which is typically fairly well to extremely well lit, and you go mm-hmm. through a door into the Lumia exhibition, and it's not. It's right. entirely <laughs> dark, which, of course, is part of what needs to happen. But from that, even before you, you know, sit in front of one of the screens and start to absorb the art itself, you are part of his world, you know, because you're in a gallery space and it's completely dark and you don't quite know what to expect. And Right. We really, um, in in planning the exhibition, um, because we have access to Wilfred's archive, which is housed at Yale's Yale's Manuscripts and Archives collection, which is part of Yale Library. We have access to Wilfred's uh, writings, his notes, and those include his specifications on um, how best to display his work. And there are several models available to us, and one of the things he insisted upon was darkness. And um, so we've made the galleries as dark as we possibly could. Um, there's, you know, there's some um, some natural light coming into the galleries, but in a way, it's I mean, it it might be entirely disorienting without just that additional light. Um, but it's just dark enough that the, I think, and I hope, the compositions 
glow and they they draw people in and I hope that we've created an environment in which people can linger and and contemplate the work in the way that Wilfred envisioned it. That was certainly my experience. That's great to hear. One of the things um, that I found myself speculating about after I visited was what the meaningful differences might have been between looking at the examples of Lumia that are in the art gallery right now um, and attending a performance, you know, by Wilfred when he was still alive or by mm-hmm. someone else operating one of the mm-hmm. uh, one of the claviluxes, which I have to imagine, you know, some aspect of performance would have come into play in responding to the audience and adjusting how you were manipulating the machine to the response you were getting and how that would change um, the viewer's experience to feel like it was responding to you in some way. Right. Well, I think um, when Wilfred began to give his Clavelux performances in the 1920s, he was part of the performance. He would um, make opening remarks and in some cases closing remarks um, to help explain the art form and prime people for what they were about to experience, which he hoped was unlike anything they'd experienced before. Of course, there had been this earlier tradition of um, color organ performances, and Wilfred was very aware of that tradition. And um, and so to uh, was the public, I think. But in those earlier examples, music was always a component of the performance. Um, music and and um, and color were said to go hand in hand, and and scientists especially were um, attempting to discover the psychological and actual physical uh, correlations between color and sound. But Wilfred ultimately. Uh, decided that no evidence existed to support those suppositions, and he developed his art form out of um, the belief that his work was best appreciated silently. So when he would explain this to the audience, he would always insist on on silence. Um, and so I think in the exhibition, that's something, there's sort of this hum, just sort of an, a hush uh, in the galleries that I think in some ways recreates the sense of performance. And in other ways, um, that is achieved through this, um, the timing of the objects in the first gallery. That is, the earliest extant examples of Wilfred's objects are so fragile, and we've preserved the original components, that we have five of the 15 works on a timing schedule, and they come on and off throughout the day um, in a sort of on a performance schedule. One comes on and you watch that and then you move, the visitor moves on to the next work and it performs and turns off and you move to the next one. And so that, I really wanted that performative aspect to come across, especially in the first gallery in which we introduce this idea of Wilfred's practice on the Clavelux, even though that practice is largely lost because the clavelux itself 
is um, has not survived. Um, one of the things that brought into great relief for me the you know uh, maybe not initially apparent aspect of the artistry of this art, it, you know the, the the forms themselves as you were talking about earlier are so organic and you know have this kind of mystical ever-changing quality but Wilfred has said when he was alive that he would have visions of particular shapes and sequences that he wanted to realize and so a lot of this stuff was very purposeful which when you're watching this is completely hard to fathom that that, that someone was making this happen on purpose. Um, do you mind talking us through a little bit of the actual mechanics of it and how it sure. was that he achieved that? Well, he, um, beginning with the earliest examples, so the earliest example in the exhibition is a work entitled Elliptical Prelude and Chalice, which is from 1928. It's one of a series of works that Wilfred developed for home use. And um, it contains, its, its mechanical apparatus contains the same basic elements that he used in the last example of his work from 1968, the year of his death, which is entitled um, Lucada, Opus 162. And those elements are, um, always include a light source, so a basic light bulb that could be purchased at a hardware store, an incandescent light bulb. Um, also some sort of color element. And in most cases, the color was introduced into the composition with a rotating color wheel. That was Wilfred's term, or a color record, he sometimes called it. In some cases, the color record would be hand-painted by Wilfred using heat-resistant theater paints, and he would apply those to a clear glass disc that rotated inside the machine, and often the light bulb, too, rotated. Um, and then the third major element would be a reflective surface of some kind, and in almost every example, he's using a bent aluminum reflective polished aluminum uh, that is dinged or dimpled in some way to create some variation within the form. Almost all of the light that you see in the composition is reflected light. And at first, the light first passes through the color element, the rotating color element, and is then reflected off a rotating set of reflectors onto the back of the screen. And that is what you see. It's really incredible. There, there is, uh, you have an opportunity in the exhibition to peek behind the scenes and look at mm -hmm. what's actually happening on the other side of the screen. And, you know, you can go back and forth a hundred times and it still seems like magic that, that mm -hmm. the turning records and lights and the metal produce the image that you see when you sit in the right. and look at the at the screen and i um i completely understand the the impulse and the desire to look behind the screen um, but another way in which i 
I was aiming to respect Wilfred's wishes for the display of his work um, was to treat it as an art form, a fine art form, and for people first to experience the the aesthetics of the work and appreciate um, the compositions themselves before revealing what is behind the screen. And I realized that there needed to be one moment of reveal in order for all of it to make sense. And also to underscore how just how um, special these objects are. These are not digital recordings, digital projections. They're made with very simple means that um, that create these wondrous compositions. And I wanted to show that, but also um, to allow people to enter the illusions first and uh, allow themselves to be immersed in the compositions before they really fully understood what was the mechanics of the objects. Yeah, absolutely. And the, and the, the magic of it you know, has been appreciated in dramatic ways by lots of people, not not just Eugene Epstein, but mm. the, the foreword in the book that accompanies the show is by James Terrell, who was taken, I think, to see Monet's Water, Water Lilies, Lilies and instead became transfixed at a very young age by, um, you know. One of the, the small-scale Lumia compositions that MoMA acquired, in fact, it was the same one that inspired Eugene Epstein, this vertical sequence, Opus 137 of 1941, acquired in 1942. And to MoMA's great credit, they provided uh, support for Wilfred from that point all the way up through the to 1980 when they disassembled Lumia Suite, which was that major commission I mentioned earlier. Um, that's four decades of support. Um, and really remarkable, um, especially considering that Wilfred is no longer known to us today. Um, but it also demonstrates that in his own time, he was um, supported and his work appreciated by the um, modern art establishment. Um. If you'll allow me to quote one more thing that he said in the interview that we've talked about a couple of times, um, when he was asked something to do with his motivation for moving in this direction artistically. I mean, it really it was a it was a lifelong passion. He was mm. focused on this his entire career as an artist. And he says in the interview, which was right at the end of his life, I've always driven for peace of mind, silence in which to be able to really think, really contemplate. And those things come when you're alone and you're silent and you're uninterrupted at no other time. And therefore, those who really want to express things must seek that and must know how to benefit by it. Mm -hmm. And I think that that gets at some of the really passionate responses that people have had to, to seeing his art, that it, right. it does inspire something startling right. um, and at the same time extremely quiet and contemplative and right 
I'm hoping part of the work that the exhibition will do is to demonstrate um, that his work still resonates today. It may not be um, digitally produced, but um, the experience of the work is still powerful and moving and resonant. Yeah, I think almost because of the um, overwhelming you know, presence of digital screens in our lives, it it adds a power to to seeing his work that may not even have existed when he was alive. That right. you know, we are so accustomed to seeing all kinds of unheard of things ha- play out on screens in front of us, and still there's something mm-hmm. really otherworldly and you know almost unsettling, not in a bad way, but in a really right. profound way about seeing his art. Right, and from a technical standpoint, um, it seems almost impossible to. F- digitally digitally achieve the effects um, or simulate the same effects that Wilfred was able to produce with reflective material. The sense, and, and you've watched these works, so I think when you, when you see them, you um, often notice more nebulous forms, almost like a foggy light that suffuses the screen um, at the same time that sharp light forms emerge and dissipate. And um, that more nebulous light is very difficult to achieve through any means except um, by reflection. Yeah, there are moments almost where you, uh, you aren't sure whether your eye is still seeing something or seeing something yet because the motion of them is for the most part very gradual and um yeah as if veiled behind the screen of smoke a second screen or um you know some kind of nebulous field if we're using the cosmological analogy again um i think I think that is is still when we when you see images of the cosmos today, they um, attempt to recreate that sense of sharp light with nebulous light, um, and s- something about it just isn't quite as as convincing once you see the real thing, which is the the Lumia composition. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, thank you so much for coming in to talk about it. Um, Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It was fun. Good. I hope that um, I hope that anyone listening can have the opportunity to come to the gallery between now and July 23rd to see the show. Um, It's also traveling. Right. To the Smithsonian American Art Museum. And whether or not you see the exhibition, you should definitely check out the book, which has the same title. It's Lumia, Thomas Wilfred and the Art of Light. It's available in bookstores and online, including through the Yale University Press website. Thank you for listening, and please visit us online at yalebooks.com to keep up with this podcast series, as well as the latest from our blog and our authors.